Part Four of History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume Two, by Friedrich Schiller, translated by Reverend A. J. W. Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From the very close of the Bohemian Troubles, Ferdinand had carried on a counter-reformation in his hereditary dominions, in which, however, from regard to some of the Protestant estates he proceeded at first with moderation. But the victories of his generals in Lower Germany encouraged him to throw off all reserve. Accordingly, he had it intimated to all the Protestants in these dominions that they must either abandon their religion or their native country, a bitter and dreadful alternative which excited the most violent commotions among his Austrian subjects. In the Palatinate, immediately after the expulsion of Frederick, the Protestant religion had been suppressed, and its professors expelled from the University of Heidelberg. All this was but the prelude to greater changes. In the Electoral College held at Mühlhausen, the Roman Catholics had demanded of the Emperor that all the archbishoprics, bishoprics, mediate and immediate, abbacies and monasteries which, since the Diet of Augsburg, had been secularized by the Protestants, should be restored to the Church in order to indemnify them for the losses and sufferings in the war. To a Roman Catholic prince so zealous as Ferdinand was, such a hint was not likely to be neglected, but he still thought it would be premature to arouse the whole Protestants of Germany by so decisive a step. Not a single Protestant prince but would be deprived by this revocation of the religious foundations of a part of his land for where these revenues had not actually been diverted to secular purposes, they had been made over to the Protestant church. To this source, many princes owed the chief part of their revenues and importance. All without exception would be irritated by this demand of restoration. The religious treaty did not expressly deny their right to these chapters, although it did not allow it. But a possession, which had now been held for nearly a century, the silence of four preceding emperors and the law of equity, which gave them an equal right with the Roman Catholics to the foundations of their common ancestors, might be strongly pleaded by them as a valid title. Besides the actual loss of power and authority, which the surrender of these foundations would occasion, besides the inevitable confusion which would necessarily attend it, one important disadvantage to which it would lead was that the restoration of the Roman Catholic bishops would increase the strength of that party in the Diet by so many additional votes. Such grievous sacrifices likely to fall on the Protestants made the Emperor apprehensive of a formidable opposition, and until the military ardor should have cooled in Germany, he had no wish to provoke a party formidable by its union, and which in the Elector of Saxony had a powerful leader. He resolved, therefore, to try the experiment at first on a small scale, in order to ascertain how it was likely to succeed on a larger one. Accordingly, some of the free cities in Upper Germany and the Duke of Württemberg received orders to surrender to the Roman Catholics several of the confiscated chapters. The state of affairs in Saxony enabled the emperor to make some bolder experiments in that quarter. In the bishoprics of Magdeburg and Halberstadt, the Protestant canons had not hesitated to elect bishops of their own religion. Both bishoprics, with the exception of the town of Magdeburg itself, were overrun by the troops of Wallenstein. It happened, moreover, that by the death of the administrator Duke Christian of Brunswick, Halberstadt was vacant, 
as was also the Archbishopric of Magdeburg, by the deposition of Christian William, a prince of the House of Brandenburg. Ferdinand took advantage of the circumstance to restore the see of Halberstadt to a Roman Catholic bishop, and a prince of his own house. To avoid a similar coercion, the chapter of Magdeburg hastened to elect a son of the elector of Saxony as archbishop. But the Pope, who with his arrogated authority interfered in this matter, conferred the archbishopric of Magdeburg also on the Austrian prince. Thus, with all his pious zeal for religion, Ferdinand never lost sight of the interest of his family. At length, when the peace of Lübeck had delivered the emperor from all apprehensions on the side of Denmark, and the German Protestants seemed entirely powerless, the League becoming louder and more urgent in its demands, Ferdinand, in 1629, signed the Edict of Restitution, so famous by its disastrous consequences, which he had previously laid before the four Roman Catholic electors for their approbation. In the preamble, he claimed the prerogative, in right of his imperial authority, to interpret the meaning of the religious treaty, the ambiguities of which had already caused so many disputes, and to decide as supreme arbiter and judge between the contending parties. This prerogative he founded upon the practice of his ancestors, and its previous recognition even by Protestant states. Saxony had actually acknowledged this right of the emperor, and now it became evident how deeply this court had injured the Protestant cause by its dependence on the House of Austria. But though the meaning of the religious treaty was really ambiguous, as a century of religious disputes sufficiently proved, yet for the emperor, who must be either a Protestant or a Roman Catholic, and therefore an interested party, to assume the right of deciding between the disputants was clearly a violation of an essential article of the pacification. He could not be judge in his own cause without reducing the liberties of the empire to an empty sound. And now, in virtue of this usurpation, Ferdinand decided that every secularization of a religious foundation, mediate or immediate, by the Protestants, subsequent to the date of the treaty, was contrary to its spirit, and must be revoked as a breach of it. He further decided that by the religious peace, Catholic proprietors of estates were no further bound to their Protestant subjects than to allow them full liberty to quit their territories. In obedience to this decision, all unlawful possessors of benefices, the Protestant states in short without exception, were ordered, under pain of the ban of the empire, immediately to surrender their usurped possessions to the imperial commissioners. This sentence applied to no less than two archbishoprics and twelve bishoprics, besides innumerable abbacies. The edict came like a thunderbolt on the whole of Protestant Germany, dreadful even in its immediate consequences, but yet more so from the further calamities it seemed to threaten. The Protestants were now convinced that the suppression of their religion had been resolved on by the Emperor and the League, and that the overthrow of German liberty would soon follow. Their remonstrances were unheeded, the commissioners were named, and an army assembled to enforce obedience. The edict was first put in force in Augsburg, where the treaty was concluded. The city was again placed under the government of its bishop, and six Protestant churches in the town were closed. The Duke of Württemberg was, in like manner, compelled to surrender his abbacies. These severe measures, though they alarmed the Protestant states, were yet insufficient to rouse them to an active resistance. Their fear of the emperor was too strong, 
and many were disposed to quiet submission. The hope of attaining their end by gentle measures induced the Roman Catholics likewise to delay for a year the execution of the edict, and thus save the Protestants. Before the end of that period, the success of the Swedish arms had totally changed the state of affairs. In a diet held at Ratisbon, in which Ferdinand was present in person, in 1630, the necessity of taking some measures for the immediate restoration of a general peace to Germany, and for the removal of all grievances, was debated. The complaints of the Roman Catholics were scarcely less numerous than those of the Protestants, although Ferdinand had flattered himself that by the Edict of Restitution he had secured the members of the League, and its leader by the gift of the electoral dignity, and the cession of great part of the Palatinate. But the good understanding between the Emperor and the Princes of the League had rapidly declined since the employment of Wallenstein. Accustomed to give law to Germany, and even to sway the Emperor's own destiny, the haughty Elector of Bavaria now at once saw himself supplanted by the Imperial General, and with that of the League, his own importance completely undermined. Another had now stepped in to reap the fruits of his victories, and to bury his past services in oblivion. Wallenstein's imperious character, whose dearest triumph was in degrading the authority of the princes, and giving an odious latitude to that of the emperor, tended not a little to augment the irritation of the elector. Discontented with the emperor, and distrustful of his intentions, he had entered into an alliance with France, which the other members of the League were suspected of favoring. A fear of the emperor's plans of aggrandizement and discontent with existing evils, had extinguished among them all feelings of gratitude. Wallenstein's exactions had become altogether intolerable. Brandenburg estimated his losses at twenty, Pomerania at ten, Hesse-Cassel at seven millions of dollars, and the rest in proportion. The cry for redress was loud, urgent, and universal. All prejudices were hushed. Roman Catholics and Protestants were united on this point. The terrified emperor was assailed on all sides by petitions against Wallenstein, and his ears filled with the most fearful descriptions of his outrages. Ferdinand was not naturally cruel. If not totally innocent of the atrocities which were practiced in Germany under the shelter of his name, he was ignorant of their extent, and he was not long in yielding to the representation of the princes, and reduced his standing army by 18,000 cavalry. While this reduction took place, the Swedes were actively preparing an expedition into Germany, and the greater part of the disbanded imperialists enlisted under their banners. The emperor's concessions only encouraged the elector of Bavaria to bolder demands. So long as the Duke of Friedland retained the supreme command, his triumph over the emperor was incomplete. The princes of the League were meditating a severe revenge on Wallenstein for that haughtiness with which he had treated them all alike. His dismissal was demanded by the whole college of electors, and even by Spain, with a degree of unanimity and urgency which astonished the emperor. The anxiety with which Wallenstein's enemies pressed for his dismissal ought to have convinced the emperor of the importance of his services. Wallenstein, informed of the cabals which were forming against him in Ratisbon, lost no time in opening the eyes of the emperor to the real views of the elector of Bavaria. He himself appeared in Ratisbon, with a pomp which threw his master into the shade, and increased the hatred of his opponents. Long was the emperor undecided. The sacrifice demanded was a painful one. 
To the Duke of Friedland alone he owed his preponderance. He felt how much he would lose in yielding him to the indignation of the princes. But at this moment, unfortunately, he was under the necessity of conciliating the electors. His son Ferdinand had already been chosen king of Hungary, and he was endeavoring to procure his election as his successor in the empire. For this purpose, the support of Maximilian was indispensable. This consideration was the weightiest, and to oblige the elector of Bavaria, he scrupled not to sacrifice his most valuable servant. At the Diet of Ratisbon, there were present ambassadors from France, empowered to adjust the differences which seemed to menace a war in Italy between the emperor and their sovereign. Vincent, Duke of Mantua and Montferrat, dying without issue, his next relation, Charles, Duke of Nevers, had taken possession of this inheritance, without doing homage to the emperor as liege lord of the principality. Encouraged by the support of France and Venice, he refused to surrender these territories into the hands of the imperial commissioners, until his title to them should be decided. On the other hand, Ferdinand had taken up arms at the instigation of the Spaniards, to whom, as possessors of Milan, the near neighborhood of a vassal of France was peculiarly alarming, and who welcomed this prospect of making, with the assistance of the emperor, additional conquests in Italy. In spite of all the exertions of Pope Urban VIII to avert a war in that country, Ferdinand marched the German army across the Alps, and threw the Italian states into general consternation. His arms had been successful throughout Germany, and exaggerated fears revived the old and apprehension of Austria's projects of universal monarchy. All the horrors of the German war now spread like a deluge over those favored countries which the Po waters. Mantua was taken by storm, and the surrounding districts given up to the ravages of a lawless soldiery. The curse of Italy was thus added to the maledictions upon the emperor, which resounded through Germany, and even in the Roman conclave, silent prayers were offered for the success of the Protestant arms. Alarmed by the universal hatred which this Italian campaign had drawn upon him, and wearied out by the urgent remonstrances of his electors, who zealously supported the application of the French ambassador, the emperor promised the investiture to the new Duke of Mantua. This important service on the part of Bavaria, of course, required an equivalent from France. The adjustment of the treaty gave the envoys of Richelieu, during their residence in Ratisbon, the desired opportunity of entangling the emperor in dangerous intrigues, of inflaming the discontented princes of the League still more strongly against him, and of turning to his disadvantage all the transactions of the Diet. For this purpose, Richelieu had chosen an admirable instrument in Father Joseph, a Capuchin friar, who accompanied the ambassadors without exciting the least suspicion. One of his principal instructions was assiduously to bring about the dismissal of Wallenstein. With the general who had led it to victory, the army of Austria would lose its principal strength. Many armies could not compensate for the loss of this individual. It would therefore be a master stroke of policy at the very moment when a victorious monarch, the absolute master of his operations, was arming against the emperor to remove from the head of the imperial armies the only general who, by ability and military experience, was able to cope with the French king. Father Joseph, in the interests of Bavaria, undertook to overcome the irresolution of the emperor, who was now in a manner besieged by the Spaniards and the electoral council. 
it would be expedient, he thought, to gratify the electors on this occasion, and thereby facilitate his son's election to the Roman crown. This object once gained, Wallenstein could at any time resume his former station. The artful Capuchin was too sure of his man to touch upon this ground of consolation. The voice of a monk was to Ferdinand II the voice of God. Nothing on earth, writes his own confessor, was more sacred in his eyes than a priest. If it could happen, he used to say that an angel and a regular were to meet him at the same time and place. The regular should receive his first, and the angel his second obeisance. Wallenstein's dismissal was determined upon. In return for this pious concession, the Capuchin dexterously counteracted the emperor's scheme to procure for the king of Hungary the further dignity of the king of the Romans. In an express clause of the treaty just concluded, the French ministers engaged in the name of their sovereign to observe a complete neutrality between the emperor and his enemies, while at the same time Richelieu was actually negotiating with the king of Sweden to declare war, and pressing upon him the alliance of his master. The latter, indeed, disavowed the lie as soon as it had served its purpose, and Father Joseph, confined to a convent, must atone for the alleged offense of exceeding his instructions. Ferdinand perceived when too late that he had been opposed upon. A wicked capuchin, he was heard to say, has disarmed me with his rosary, and thrust nothing less than six electoral crowns into his cowl. Artifice and trickery thus triumphed over the emperor, at the moment when he was believed to be omnipotent in Germany, and actually was so in the field. With the loss of 18,000 men, and of a general who alone was worth whole armies, he left Ratisbon without gaining the end for which he had made such sacrifices. Before the Swedes had vanquished him in the field, Maximilian of Bavaria and Father Joseph had given him a mortal blow. At this memorable diet at Ratisbon, the war with Sweden was resolved upon, and that of Mantua terminated. Vainly had the princes present at it interceded for the Dukes of Mecklenburg, and equally fruitless had been an application by the English ambassadors for a pension to the Palatine Frederick. Wallenstein was at the head of an army of nearly a hundred thousand men who adored him, when the sentence of his dismissal arrived. Most of the officers were his creatures. With the common soldiers, his hint was law. His ambition was boundless, his pride indomitable, his imperious spirit could not brook an injury unavenged. One moment would now precipitate him from the height of grandeur into the obscurity of a private station. To execute such a sentence upon such a delinquent seemed to require more address than it cost to obtain it from the judge. Accordingly, Two of Wallenstein's most intimate friends were selected as heralds of these evil tidings, and instructed to soften them as much as possible by flattering assurances of the continuance of the emperor's favor. Wallenstein had ascertained the purport of their message before the imperial ambassadors arrived. He had time to collect himself, and his countenance exhibited an external calmness, while grief and rage were storming in his bosom. He had made up his mind to obey. The emperor's decision had taken him by surprise before circumstances were ripe, or his preparations complete, for the bold measures he had contemplated. His extensive estates were scattered over Bohemia and Moravia, and by their confiscation the emperor might at once destroy the sinews of his power. He looked, therefore, to the future for revenge, and in this hope 
he was encouraged by the predictions of an Italian astrologer who led his imperious spirit like a child in leading strings. Sani had read in the stars that his master's brilliant career was not yet ended, and that bright and glorious prospects still awaited him. It was indeed unnecessary to consult the stars to foretell that an enemy, Gustavus Adolphus, would ere long render indispensable the services of such a general as Wallenstein. The emperor is betrayed, said Wallenstein to the messengers. I pity but forgive him. It is plain that the grasping spirit of the Bavarian dictates to him. I grieve that, with so much weakness he has sacrificed me, but I will obey. He dismissed the emissaries with princely presents, and in a humble letter besought the continuance of the emperor's favor, and of the dignities he had bestowed upon him. The murmurs of the army were universal, on hearing of the dismissal of their general, and the greater part of his officers immediately quitted the imperial service. Many followed him to his estates in Bohemia and Moravia. Others he attached to his interests by pensions, in order to command their services when the opportunity should offer. But repose was the last thing that Wallenstein contemplated when he returned to private life. In his retreat, he surrounded himself with a regal pomp, which seemed to mock the sentence of degradation. Six gates led to the palace he inhabited in Prague, and a hundred houses were pulled down to make way for his courtyard. Similar palaces were built on his other numerous estates. Gentlemen of the noblest houses contended for the honor of serving him, and even imperial chamberlains resigned the golden key to the emperor to fill a similar office under Wallenstein. He maintained sixty pages who were instructed by the ablest masters. His antechamber was protected by fifty lifeguards. His table never consisted of less than a hundred covers, and his seneschal was a person of distinction. When he traveled, his baggage and suite accompanied him in a hundred wagons, drawn by six or four horses. His court followed in sixty carriages, attended by fifty led horses. The pomp of his liveries, the splendor of his equipage, and the decorations of his apartments were in keeping with all the rest. Six barons and as many knights were in constant attendance upon his person, and ready to execute his slightest order. Twelve patrols went their rounds about his palace, to prevent any disturbance. His busy genius required silence. The noise of coaches was to be kept away from his residence, and the streets leading to it were frequently blocked up with chains. His own circle was as silent as the approaches to his palace. Dark, reserved, and impenetrable, he was more sparing of his words than of his gifts, while the little that he spoke was harsh and imperious. He never smiled, and the coldness of his temperament was proof against sensual seductions. Ever occupied with grand schemes, he despised all those idle amusements in which so many waste their lives. The correspondence he kept up with the whole of Europe was chiefly managed by himself, and that as little as possible might be trusted to the silence of others, most of the letters were written by his own hand. He was a man of large stature, thin, of a sallow complexion, with short red hair and small sparkling eyes. A gloomy and forbidding seriousness sat upon his brow, and his magnificent presence alone retained the trembling crowd of his dependents. In this stately obscurity did Wallenstein silently but not inactively await the hour of revenge. The victorious career of Gustavus Adolphus soon gave him a presentiment of its approach. Not one of his lofty schemes had been abandoned, and the emperor's ingratitude 
had loosened the curb of his ambition. The dazzling splendor of his private life bespoke high-soaring projects, and lavish as a king, he seemed already to reckon among his certain possessions those which he contemplated with hope. After Wallenstein's dismissal, and the invasion of Gustavus Adolphus, a new generalissimo was to be appointed, and it now appeared advisable to unite both the imperial army and that of the League under one general. Maximilian of Bavaria sought this appointment, which would have enabled him to dictate to the emperor, who, from a conviction of this, wished to procure the command for his eldest son, the king of Hungary. At last, in order to avoid offense to either of the competitors, the appointment was given to Tilly, who now exchanged the Bavarian for the Austrian service. The imperial army in Germany, after the retirement of Wallenstein, amounted to about 40,000 men, that of the League to nearly the same number, both commanded by excellent officers, trained by the experience of several campaigns, and proud of a long series of victories. With such a force, little apprehension was felt at the invasion of the King of Sweden, and the less so, as it commanded both Pomerania and Mecklenburg, the only countries through which he could enter Germany. After the unsuccessful attempt of the King of Denmark to check the Emperor's progress, Gustavus Adolphus was the only prince in Europe from whom oppressed liberty could look for protection, the only one who, while he was personally qualified to conduct such an enterprise, had both political motives to recommend and wrongs to justify it. Before the commencement of the war in Lower Saxony, important political interests induced him, as well as the King of Denmark, to offer his services and his army for the defense of Germany. But the offer of the latter had, to his own misfortune, been preferred. Since that time, Wallenstein and the Emperor had adopted measures which must have been equally offensive to him as a man and as a king. Imperial troops had been dispatched to the aid of the Polish king, Sigismund, to defend Prussia against the Swedes. When the king complained to Wallenstein of this act of hostility, he received for answer, The emperor has more soldiers than he wants for himself. He must help his friends. The Swedish ambassadors had been insolently ordered by Wallenstein to withdraw from the conference at Lübeck, and when, unawed by this command, they were courageous enough to remain, contrary to the law of nations, he had threatened them with violence. Ferdinand had also insulted the Swedish flag, and intercepted the king's dispatches to Transylvania. He also threw every obstacle in the way of a peace betwixt Poland and Sweden, supported the pretensions of Sigismund to the Swedish throne, and denied the right of Gustavus to the title of king. Deigning no regard to the repeated remonstrances of Gustavus, he rather aggravated the offense by new grievances than exceeded the required satisfaction. So many personal motives, supported by important considerations, both of policy and religion, and seconded by pressing invitations from Germany, had their full weight with a prince, who was naturally the more jealous of his royal prerogative, the more it was questioned, who was flattered by the glory he hoped to gain as protector of the oppressed, and passionately loved war as the element of his genius. But until a truce or peace with Poland should set his hands free, a new and dangerous war was not to be thought of. Cardinal Richelieu had the merit of effecting this truce with Poland. This great statesman, who guided the helm of Europe, while in France he repressed the rage of faction and the insolence of the nobles, pursued steadily, amidst the cares of a stormy administration, his plan of lowering the ascendancy of the House of Austria. 
but circumstances opposed considerable obstacles to the execution of his designs, and even the greatest minds cannot with impunity defy the prejudices of the age. The minister of a Roman Catholic king and a cardinal, he was prevented by the purple he bore from joining the enemies of that church in an open attack on a power which had the address to sanctify its ambitious encroachments under the name of religion. The external deference which Richelieu was obliged to pay to the narrow views of his contemporaries limited his exertions to secret negotiations, by which he endeavored to gain the hand of others to accomplish the enlightened prospects of his own mind. After a fruitless attempt to prevent the peace between Denmark and the Emperor, he had recourse to Gustavus Adolphus, the hero of his age. No exertion was spared to bring this monarch to a favorable decision, and at the same time to facilitate the execution of it. Charnas, an unsuspected agent of the cardinal, proceeded to Polish Prussia, where Gustavus Adolphus was conducting the war against Sigismund, and alternately visited these princes in order to persuade them to a truce or peace. Gustavus had been long inclined to it, and the French minister succeeded at last in opening the eyes of Sigismund to his true interests, and to the deceitful policy of the emperor. A truce for six years was agreed on, Gustavus being allowed to retain all his conquests. This treaty gave him also what he had so long desired, the liberty of directing his arms against the emperor. For this the French ambassador offered him the alliance of his sovereign and considerable subsidies. But Gustavus Adolphus was justly apprehensive, lest the acceptance of the assistance should make him dependent upon France and fetter him in the career of conquest, while an alliance with a Roman Catholic power might excite distrust among the Protestants. If the war was just and necessary, the circumstances under which it was undertaken were not less promising. The name of the emperor, it is true, was formidable, his resources inexhaustible, his power hitherto invincible. So dangerous a contest would have dismayed any other than Gustavus. He saw all the obstacles and dangers which opposed his undertaking, but he knew also the means by which, as he hoped, they might be conquered. His army, though not numerous, was well-disciplined, inured to hardship by a severe climate and campaigns, and trained to victory in the war with Poland. Sweden, though poor in men and money, and overtaxed by an eight-years' war, was devoted to its monarch with an enthusiasm which assured him of the ready support of his subjects. In Germany the name of the emperor was at least as much hated as feared. The Protestant princes only awaited the arrival of a deliverer to throw off his intolerable yoke and openly declare for the Swedes. Even the Roman Catholic states would welcome an antagonist of the emperor, whose opposition might control his overwhelming influence. The first victory gained on German ground would be decisive. It would encourage those princes who still hesitated to declare themselves, strengthen the cause of his adherents, augment his troops, and open resources for the maintenance of the campaign. If the greater part of the German states were impoverished by oppression, the flourishing Hans towns had escaped, and they could not hesitate by a small voluntary sacrifice to avert the general ruin. As the imperialists should be driven from the different provinces, their armies would diminish, since they were subsisting on the countries in which they were encamped. The strength, too, of the emperor had been lessened, by ill-timed detachments to Italy and the Netherlands, while Spain, weakened by the loss of the Manila galleons, and engaged in a serious war in the Netherlands, could afford him little support. 
Great Britain, on the other hand, gave the King of Sweden hope of considerable subsidies, and France, now at peace with itself, came forward with the most favorable offers. But the strongest pledge for the success of his undertaking, Gustavus found in himself. Prudence demanded that he should embrace all the foreign assistance he could in order to guard his enterprise from the imputation of rashness, but all his confidence and courage were entirely derived from himself. He was indisputably the greatest general of his age, and the bravest soldier in the army which he had formed. Familiar with the tactics of Greece and Rome, he had discovered a more effective system of warfare, which was adopted as a model by the most eminent commanders of subsequent times. He reduced the unwieldy squadrons of cavalry, and rendered their movements more light and rapid, and with the same view, he widened the intervals between his battalions. Instead of the usual array in a single line, he disposed his forces in two lines, that the second might advance in the event of the first giving way. He made up for his want of cavalry by placing infantry among the horse, a practice which frequently decided the victory. Europe first learned from him the importance of infantry. All Germany was astonished at the strict discipline which, at the first, so creditably distinguished the Swedish army within their territories. All disorders were punished with the utmost severity, particularly impiety, theft, gambling, and dueling. The Swedish articles of war enforced frugality. In the camp, the king's tent not accepted, neither silver nor gold was to be seen. The general's eyes looked as vigilantly to the morals as to the martial bravery of his soldiers. Every regiment was ordered to form round its chaplain for morning and evening prayers. In all these points, the lawgiver was also an example. A sincere and ardent piety exalted his courage. Equally free from the coarse infidelity which leaves the passions of the barbarian without a control, and from the groveling superstition of Ferdinand, who humbled himself to the dust before the supreme being, while he haughtily trampled on his fellow creature, in the height of his success, he was ever a man and a Christian. In the height of his devotion, a king and a hero. The hardships of war he shared with the meanest soldier in his army, maintained a calm serenity amidst the hottest fury of battle. His glance was omnipresent, and he intrepidly forgot the danger while he exposed himself to the greatest peril. His natural courage indeed too often made him forget the duty of a general, and the life of a king ended in the death of a common soldier but such a leader was followed to victory alike by the coward and the brave, and his eagle glance marked every heroic deed which his example had inspired. The fame of their sovereign excited in the nation an enthusiastic sense of their own importance. Proud of their king, the peasant in Finland and Gothland joyfully contributed his pittance, the soldier willingly shed his blood, and the lofty energy which his single mind had imparted to the nation long survived its creator. The necessity of the war was acknowledged, but the best plan of conducting it was a matter of much question. Even to the bold Chancellor Oxenstiern, an offensive war appeared too daring a measure. The resources of his poor and conscientious master appeared to him too slender to compete with those of a despotic sovereign who held all Germany at his command. But the minister's timid scruples were overruled by the hero's penetrating prudence. If we await the enemy in Sweden, said Gustavus, in the event of a defeat, everything would be lost. By a fortunate commencement in Germany, everything would be gained. The sea is wide, and we have a long line of coast in Sweden to defend. If the enemy's fleet should escape us, 
were our own be defeated, it would in either case be impossible to prevent the enemy's landing. Everything depends on the retention of Stralsund. So long as this harbor is open to us, we shall both command the Baltic and secure a retreat from Germany. But to protect this port, we must not remain in Sweden, but advance at once into Pomerania. Let us talk no more, then, of a defensive war by which we should sacrifice our greatest advantages. Sweden must not be doomed to behold a hostile banner. If we are vanquished in Germany, it will be time enough to follow your plan. Gustavus resolved to cross the Baltic and attack the emperor. His preparations were made with the utmost expedition, and his precautionary measures were not less prudent than the resolution itself was bold and magnanimous. Before engaging in so distant a war, it was necessary to secure Sweden against its neighbors. At a personal interview with the king of Denmark at Markarod, Gustavus assured himself of the friendship of that monarch. His frontier on the side of Moscow was well guarded. Poland might be held in check from Germany if it betrayed any design of infringing truce. Falkenberg, a Swedish ambassador, who visited the courts of Holland and Germany, obtained the most flattering promises from several Protestant princes, though none of them yet possessed courage or self-devotion enough to enter into a formal alliance with him. Lubeck and Hamburg engaged to advance him money, and to accept Swedish copper in return. Emissaries were also dispatched to the Prince of Transylvania, to excite that implacable enemy of Austria to arms. End of Part 4